Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Eric Felton. It's one thing to have to get a license to practice medicine or be a lawyer, but should people have to get government permission to be employed as locksmiths or hair braiders or horse massage therapists? Joining us today to talk about the relentless growth of occupational license requirements is James Cooper, associate professor at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. James, welcome to the Daily Standard podcast. Hi. It's great to be here. So what sorts of jobs require licenses these days? Well, as you mentioned in your uh, in your in your intro, of course, we think of doctors and and lawyers and dentists, but uh, there is a a litany. Uh, you you mentioned a few of the more bizarre that require licensing, but uh, floral designers, uh, interior designers, um, um, hair. I think you you mentioned hair braiders. The the data uh, suggests that. Uh, since the 1950s that the number of professions or the number of workers that are in licensed professions has grown about fivefold. Uh, From something like 5% to, around World War yeah, II. Yeah, exactly, to, 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 to about, I think, 25% today, somewhere, somewhere in that range. Um, and right now, again, uh, the, there, there's something like 60 occupations that every state requires licensure for. And overall, there are about 110 different occupations throughout the country that in different states. So there's, there's heterogeneity across the states um, that require licensing. So the, so the bottom line is, is that it's, it's grown a great deal, grown a great deal. And this really affects people's ability to get an honest job and to do a day's work, you know, because a lot of these licenses, it's not just a matter of going to the license office and and signing up and getting a license, but a lot of it entails training classes, paying an educational service of some sort, um, paying a license fee. It can add up to a lot of money that stands between people who are looking for work and the job they're seeking. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So, uh, for instance, uh, the interior designer in Florida, I I believe, have to have a college degree. There's an example of of maybe you, you think you'd be great at being an interior designer, but I've got to now pay for four years of college. How am I going to do that? Well, so I'll go back to the drawing board and try something else. Uh, to be a hair braider, to be a cosmetologist, to be a barber, there are often requirements that you take a certain number of hours at a community college or someplace that teaches this skill in order to do that. That's expensive. You're absolutely right. It's not just, a, okay, I have to get a license like I license my dog. I go down to Alexandria and, and pay my $25 a year fee to license my Labrador. This isn't that. Uh, you have to actually entail, uh, spend, uh, in some cases, substantial sum of money to get whatever the requisite qualification is. If somebody's going to be a doctor and they have to get a license, it's clear that you don't want people practicing medicine who don't have the license, don't have the appropriate education. But with a lot of these other professions that require license, it would seem that the license requirement has a whole lot less to do with public safety than it does with protecting the livelihood of those who are already in the profession. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Now, now what I'd say is uh, the premise of the question, the idea that doctors maybe don't need to, or, or doctors need to be licensed where others won't, I think that at some level you could, you could think that maybe you don't need, maybe you want some, the asymmetric information problem would be such that you would want 
a minimum level of quality. One of the issues is it's perhaps unclear whether the government necessarily needs to provide that or you can have private credentialing. Um, but, but, but I think that um, you're, you're absolutely right with respect to the, to the, other, um, to the other types, the, the massage therapists, the yoga instructors. Um, the, the notion that you're, you need these licensing requirements to improve quality is really empirically falsifiable. They're the last year, the um, uh, Council of Economic Advisors in the Obama administration released a, a really good report on occupational licensing that was largely critical of it and pointed out all the flaws and, and that have been that have come from the growth and and have reviewed did a really good review of the studies that are out there on quality uh, and found that you know almost without exception all the empirical studies of this this have shown that there's really been no that these licensing regimes aren't really uh, or aren't really associated with improvement in quality as how they're touted. I mean, so many government regulations are put forward as necessary to protect the consumer. I think at the end of the day, they're about protecting people who are in that industry from competition. It's one of those things where, it, it as you said, it cuts against uh, political uh, fault lines where you would normally think businesses, they're in favor of free market principles. But actually, a lot of businesses are not interested in free markets at all. They're interested in mm -hmm. protected markets. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I I would say um, uh, uh, before going into academics, I spent some time at the Federal Trade Commission. And one thing that the Federal Trade Commission has done in a bipartisan basis really since the 80s, and it's little, probably a little known part of what it does is what's called competition advocacy. And that's involved in trying to convince states to not enact whether it's a you know occupational licensing is a clear example, but really a, there are there are a host of state restraints on competition that are, um, and one thing that I found working there is the show why this is a bipartisan issue is one uh, at the FTC whether it was a Democratic administration or Republican administration this was a priority this was something that both administrations wanted to do but also at the state level whether the state was a red state or a blue state you found protectionism um, that's one thing that we're. Um, I'm, I'm working as an expert with the Federal Society's regu uh, Regulatory Transparency Project, and we're trying to, uh, uh, to, to get this information out there. I think there is a wide bipartisan consensus that this occupational licensing uh, is kind of run amok. It's a little out of control, and we see that uh, now. Maybe I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but we see that um, with, as I mentioned, the Obama administration report, which is largely critical of occupational licensing. Um, and then right now we have uh, three, uh, three Republican senators introducing a bill uh, that would address some of these uh, occupational licensing uh, uh, concerns as well. So those, that legislation would be at the federal level. There have been lots of efforts at, uh, at legislation at the state level to, um, to increase license requirements and a few efforts to roll those license requirements back. Yep. And once you have a license requirement in place, legislatively it becomes very difficult to get it taken away because the people who might benefit from it aren't exactly organized necessarily, yeah. whereas the people who do benefit from the license requirement, the people who are already in that business, benefit from it tremendously and are, are very well organized often. Um, in Arizona last year, there was a, a big effort to roll back 
a half dozen or so license requirements, things like yoga teacher training, um, instructors, um, citrus packers oh. re- required a license in, in Arizona, um, assayers, landscape architects required, you know, so that you know those plantings are just Clearly. right. And uh, when it went to the state house, and this is in what was once thought of as sort of Goldwater conservative libertarian Arizona, um, which it really isn't anymore, okay. but still the state house was packed for the hearings with the assayers and the citrus packers <laughs> and uh, all the people who already had the licenses. All the landscape with, architects with PhDs. Yeah. Absolutely, making the case that um, that their profession would be hobbled, their ability to work outside of the state on projects, interstate projects, would be hobbled if they were not properly licensed. Yeah, uh, what you've you've correctly identified, um, the public choice problem, the collective action problem that that has, has long been known in in law and economics. Uh, this this idea that um, when you you have a concentrated interest, I mean the the landscape architects have have a uh, vested interest in knowing about this legislation and uh, and opposing it. Consumers. They don't know about it unless they listen to this podcast or, or read the smart consumers are listening <laughs> to the podcast or, or right read now. something that I've written. Right. And they, they're, they're not going to know about these. And so what you end up with is the special interest most often carry the day at the state level. And so these these um, uh, these regimes, these occupational licensing regimes survive. One other threat to the licensing regimes is the courts, and there's been a concerted effort, one that you've been involved in, in, um, in litigating these issues to try to make room for economic freedom for people. You were involved in a case that went to the Supreme Court, North Carolina State Board of Dental Examiners versus the FTC. So what were the dental examiners up to and what happened in that case? Yeah, um, I was at the uh, Federal Trade Commission when, um, as, as we were, when we issued the, the decision that was ultimately upheld um, at the Supreme Court. And what was going on in North Carolina Dental? Well, you had, um, you had in mall kiosks, small businessmen and women were coming in and setting up teeth whitening operations. Okay, so you go to the mall and, you know, you go to Orange Julius. They weren't Ju- doing implant dentistry or... No, you know. no, you get your Orange Julius or uh, uh, your, your Auntie Annie's uh, pretzel and then you go by and then you get your... After you've taken all that sugar, you get your teeth whitened. This procedure or one very similar to it can be performed in a dentist's office over a couple courses and it's quite expensive. And so the difference was the kiosk price was under $100. The dentist price was probably probably in the range of 500 or even more. The dentist didn't like that, of course. And there's a lot of... the kiosk people weren't <laughs> licensed dentists. They were not. Had not been to dental school. <laughs> they had not. They, they, who knows if they had a college degree, if they, what they had, but they were providing a service for consumers. The consumers seemed to like it, a nice price. Um, and there's a lot of evidence in the record that the whole, what the dentist did was they, um, they said, well, the practice of dentistry in the state of North Carolina includes teeth whitening. And under North Carolina law, only a licensed dentist can practice dentistry. And so they sent a bunch of cease and desist letters to these kiosk operators and anyone else who's doing teeth whitening who wasn't a dentist and say, you better stop or we're going to sue you. Uh, they also sent letters to some of the suppliers of these kiosks, the people who supplied uh, the, the whitening agents, and said, if you're, you're supplying an illegal, you know, so renegades, renegade teeth whiteners, you're supplying them and you're going to be in trouble. Uh, 
clearly trying to limit competition. Uh, that was that's what they were up to, and um, the uh, the FTC sued them. The decision, though, ultimately being that the uh, the dentists did not have the right to restrict other people from doing teeth whitening. The FTC's initial decision that this was anti-competitive stood. What the Supreme Court decided was that state boards should be viewed not as a um, government entity, but instead viewed as what they most often are, a bunch of private marketplace actors. So the, the North Carolina Board of Dental Examiners was made up of a bunch of practicing dentists who use their state power to restrict competition. So what the Supreme Court said is, if you are a bunch of market participants, we're going to treat you like a bunch of market participants. And the only way you can be protected from the antitrust laws is that the state comes in, say, after the fact, after you've you've issued this anti-competitive regulation and the state comes in and reviews that and blesses that and says, okay, as a state, as a sovereign state, I like what you've done and it's okay. And then the notion there is then the state would be politically accountable for getting rid of the kiosk. And that's kind of the compromise with, so, uh, with, with, with sovereignty. What this does is it leaves open for antitrust challenge across the United States, a whole host of board regulations that restrict competition. Um, States are now scrambling to figure out what to do. James Cooper of the Scalia Law School at George Mason University, thanks so much for joining us on the Daily Standard podcast. Did you know that we do not have a license for this podcast? I I, I am not a licensed podcaster. uh, Then I'm out of here. This should be erased. (laughs) (laughs) James Cooper, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Support for the Daily Standard podcast comes from Tracker. Your phone, your wallet, your keys, any of those happen to be lost? You know they're plotting against you hiding somewhere. Have you ever noticed that when you're looking for something, the place you find it is the last place you look? Think about that one for a second. Eight years ago, Tracker changed everything when they released their first tracking device, and now they've done it again with the all-new Tracker Pixel. With Tracker Pixel, You'll never worry about losing your things again. Tracker Pixel is the lightest Bluetooth tracking device on the market. Place Tracker Pixel on whatever you tend to lose, keys, wallets, even your dog. It's small enough to fit anywhere. You can even locate your item if it's miles away because every Tracker user is part of the largest crowd locate network in the world. It's kind of like Waze, but for finding stuff. And Tracker's 30-day money-back guarantee means you truly have nothing to lose. Go to thetracker.com, enter promo code STANDARD to get 20% off any order. That's spelled T-H-E-T-R-A-C-K-R.com, thetracker.com. Use promo code STANDARD for 20% off. That's it for today's Daily Standard podcast. Be sure to tune in every day. Just go to iTunes or Google Play for a free subscription, or go to our website, weeklystandard.com. I'm Eric Felton. Thanks for listening.